What's up, everybody? Thank you. Good to see you. You guys, hello over there, too. You can respond as well. We won't do one of those, like, cheesy, like, back and forth, like, who can go louder? We're not a camp. Um, but if I have to do it, I will. Um, and so I know it's, like, the evening. I know it's dark outside. I know 10 or 15-ish of you here probably wish you were watching football instead uh, to root against the Patriots because that's what any good uh, – yeah, I, yeah. I said against. I just want to make sure you heard that. Um, and uh, – yeah, it's going to be with you. So we're working through our United series. We're talking about kind of our core values. We do this every January, gospel, community, mission. Last week we talked about the gospel. This week we're going to talk about uh, community. And uh, we're going to do this from a passage, uh, Acts 2. I'm excited to walk through this with you. But before we do that, um, I know this might be a, a little bit of a weird way to start, but uh, do you guys know who Shel Silverstein is? Shel Silverstein, yep. Um, I was not a reader as a child, uh, but I did love Shel Silverstein. He was like the only guy I would read uh, as a kid. And he wrote uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends. He wrote A Missing Piece. Uh, he wrote a boy named Sue, made famous by Johnny Cash. Some of you learned that right now, so there you go. You're welcome. I think that's an interesting fact. And, uh, you know, did anybody read The Giving Tree? Anybody read that? So that was my favorite book that Shel Silverstein wrote. Uh, and I read that book again and again and again. And uh, somebody recently recommended to me uh, to read The Giving Tree again as a doll. I probably hadn't read it since I was 10 years old. Uh, and so I went back and read it. And uh, if, if you're familiar with this book, it is a very different experience reading that book as an adult versus as a child. Um, the story basically goes, there's this tree that loves this boy, and the boy climbs on it and plays on it. Uh, but as it grows up, uh, as the boy grows up, the tree kind of tries to meet the uh, increasingly complex needs of this boy. And so uh, the boy becomes a young man, and he says, I want to go into the city and have fun, and, the, and I need some money to do that. And the tree says, well, I don't have any money to give you, but I have apples. You can take my apples and sell them uh, and use the money to go have fun in the city. And the boy gets older, and he gets married, and he has a family, and he says, I need a house. And the tree says, I can't give you a house, but I have these limbs, uh, and you can cut them off and use the wood to build a house. And the boy gets older, and he grows increasingly disillusioned with the world. And the boy says, I just want to get away. And the tree says, well, I don't have any way for you to get away, but I do have this trunk. You can cut down my trunk. You can turn it into a boat, and you can get away. And at the end of the story, nothing is left of this tree because it's given, 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 uh, other than a stump. And it says how happy the stump was that it just gave uh, and brought joy to this boy's life. Now, uh, as a child, I read that story, and I thought it was kind of funny and uh, very cute and kind of just entertaining, right? Like a tree and a boy. I would love to have a friend that's a tree. Uh, but then you read that as an adult, and particularly if you've had any element of like sacrificial giving in your life, you've been a sacrificial friend or a sacrificial spouse or a sacrificial parent. And uh, I mean, this is, I really, this is what happened. I read this for the first time in probably 20 or 30 years, and I was like, I'm going to cry. And I did cry uh, because it's just a really, really uh, well-told story. And I feel like um, any really good story does this as you get older, uh, the themes don't change as much as they mature and as you have more life experience. Uh, you kind of increasingly see deeper levels of meaning and significance that you didn't see uh, when you were younger. And, and all that's to say, I feel like I have a similar experience uh, in the passage that we just read and we're going to walk through in Acts 2, 42 through 47. I feel like this is a story. It's a real story, having a real history. Uh, but I feel like this is a historical story that I loved as a baby. Uh, not that I was like reading my Bible as an infant. That would be weird. Um, I became a Christian when I was 18 and started reading the Bible then. So, but, but more like a church planter baby. Uh, I remember uh, all the way back in 2008. Isn't that crazy to think we just say, said that sentence? All the way back in 2008, almost 10 years ago, uh, I was taking a Greek class where I actually had to study this passage, translate this passage, write a paper on this passage. And I remember coming out of that experience um, with the conviction that the things that this first church was about I would love to help be part of starting a church It's about those things as well. In fact, our core values of gospel community and mission come straight out of this text. And in fact, this text was so influential that when I preached my farewell sermon at the church that was sending us out, I preached Acts 2, 42 through 47. I got off the stage. I got in our Volvo. I loaded up uh, my wife and our giant chocolate lab penny, and we drove 24 hours west to move to Denver. Uh, that was almost a little over six years ago. Uh, now as well. I remember getting here and teaching this again and again and again because it's been so formative on who we are as a people. But uh, all that's to say, I feel like I, I was reading this recently and it was kind of like a giving tree experience where it was like, hey, there's, there's sort of a different, um, uh, I, I don't know, like a matured understanding of this text in my own life um, where there's themes that have emerged that I didn't see before and I feel like it's part of our growing experience together. Um, and so really what I want to do with our time is one, just kind of help you see the significance of this text, why it matters for your life, why it matters for the life of the church. Uh, but two is spend some time talking to you about kind of new themes uh, that I have seen in this text 
Um, they're right there. I'm not like, it's not like secret knowledge or something like that. It's just stuff I skipped over before um, that I feel like are the three huge things that I'm asking God to do in the life of our church uh, in 2017 and beyond as well. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text. And uh, the first question we're going to ask as we walk through this is like, what is going on? Uh, we typically teach through books of the Bible. And so let me give you a little bit of the context since we aren't teaching through Acts right now. We're just doing a quick vision series. Um, but what's going on? So last week we talked about the gospel and we saw how in the life of a man named Peter, uh, He's reconciled back to Jesus through the work of the gospel. And not only that, but Jesus promises to do an extraordinary work in the life of Peter, to transform Peter from being kind of history's most well-known coward to being one of the most courageous men in the history of the world. And really what you're seeing emerge in Acts 2 is that God is delivering on this promise to produce this type of fruit uh, in Peter through the work of the gospel. So to kind of let you know what's going up to, up to this point, uh, in Acts 1, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, they say, take the truth of who I am and spread it to the very ends of the earth so that all might here. And he also promises the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, I think it is, uh, you have the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 2, 14 through, to, 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 to 14 through 36, you have Peter kind of show the fruit that he's not a coward anymore, that he's full of courage because he gets in front, up in front of thousands of people that have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a major Jewish holiday called Pentecost. And in front of this fairly... Uh, antagonistic crowd, Peter gives a very, very strong uh, uh, sermon. Uh, he talks about how the story of the Old Testament, and not only that, but really the story of the history of the world has been coming to a climax, been coming to a crescendo, uh, crescendo in the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, in the gospel. And he basically preaches this, and this results then in verse 37, where all the hearers hear this, and they say this, they heard this and were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, uh, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, and Peter responds in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is even more so miraculous in verse 41 where you see, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So that's all the context and leading up to uh, the section of scripture that we're going to look at uh, in chapter two, verses 42 through 47. Now, the second question we're going to ask is not just kind of what's been going on, but like, why does this matter? Why does this matter for your life? Even if you're here and you're just passing through, right? You just let Denver be a cool place to go for a weekend, and then you're going somewhere else, which happens a lot here. We're glad you're here. Why does this matter for your life? And even more significantly, if you call Denver home, why is this so essential for your life? Well, for two really big reasons. The first is this, is what we're seeing emerge in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is the centrality of community in the mission of God. Okay, the centrality of community in the mission of God. Now, look at what happens next in Acts 2, 42 through 47. What's so essential to see, let's, let's not ask first, what, 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 what do we see? What is it that we don't see? What we don't see is kind of all of this unfold, all this miraculous kind of presence of the Holy Spirit. People are repenting and believing and getting baptized, thousands upon thousands of people. And then at the very end of that, everybody kind of looks at one another and is like, well, big gulps, huh? Okay, see you later. And then like everybody goes home. Uh, that was a Dumb and Dumber reference in case you don't like good movies. Um, <laughs> um, they don't do that. They don't uh, say, well, that was a really incredible experience. We should sort of recreate that maybe a year from now. Maybe we can set up a conference where we try to do the exact same thing year after year after year after year. No, what is the thing that they actually choose to do next? They choose to set up a community called the church. And that's very, very significant because when God has just given the responsibility to take the truth of who he is to the very ends of the earth, the very first tangible, touchable thing that he does is through the preaching of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit, he plants a church in the largest city in the region where this movement is beginning. All right, that's very, very significant for you to take away. The very first thing the very first action step, the very first touchable, tangible thing that we see God do in the accomplishment of the Great Commission is he plants a church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, now, this should be, it'd be easy to be like, okay, well, that's interesting, or that doesn't really matter. It does matter, okay? It really, really matters, and it should be very, very challenging to all of us because it's showing the centrality of the community in the mission of God, in the movement of God as well. One of the things that we have to be aware of 
is I think that as we do life in this culture, it's important for you to understand that even our own religious beliefs, if we're not sort of intentionally thoughtful, intentionally countercultural, can simply mirror uh, the culture in which we exist. So the things that the culture upholds it naturally, we kind of uphold naturally. The things the culture dislikes naturally, we dislike naturally as well. And as a consequence then, for even for the very few people in a city as irreligious as our own who self-identify as followers of Jesus, it's very easy for us to kind of think in our faith in purely individualistic terms because we exist in one of the most hyper-individualistic cultures, uh, and particularly one of the most hyper-individualistic cities and one of the most hyper-individualistic cultures really in the history of the world. And as a consequence then, it's very easy for the few of us who do self-identify as Christians to kind of think about it as my faith and my relationship with God and I got my thing going on and my Bible reading and my quiet time and I might listen to a podcast and I might listen to Christian music and you kind of do your thing and I kind of do my own thing. And I was just even thinking of this. When I was driving to the morning services this morning, um, you know, I told you last week we got a new van uh, and one of the things that happens when you get a new car is you get free XM radio for three months because they're like a drug dealer that tries to get you hooked, and then they take it away, and then you got to pay for it. And those jerks, like, how am I going to listen to Bruce Springsteen all the time? Like, my daughter knows who Bruce Springsteen is now, and I feel like it's just one of the greatest accomplishments of fatherhood that I possibly <laughs> could have done. We were listening to her yesterday, uh, and uh, we were listening to her in our house. And she was like, that's the boss. And I was like, I've never been so proud of, of my three-year-old. She's like, that's the boss. I was like, no, it's the boss. I'm so happy. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, so I was driving here. <laughs> I was driving here, and uh, I had the Christian station on. And even, like, the way that this Christian XM radio station was talking about it, I was like, it's Sunday morning, and it's almost like, kind of, this is your church. Like, you're in your car listening to Christian music, this is your church. And, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to listening to Christian music in a car. I'm just opposed saying kind of in light of this passage, like God is far more corporately and communally thinking than that. And the execution of his plans for the world, like he's not trying to set up sort of hyper-individualistic people and he gives you a little bit of information, a little bit of inspiration, but like, no, God, when he starts like accomplishing the Great Commission, he doesn't just give sort of theological information to fill your head. He doesn't just give sort of spiritual experiences to fill your emotions. He gives a community called the church to fill your life. And you're seeing here, it's very, very significant what God chooses to do first in Acts chapter 2. Now, secondly with this, is we're not just seeing the centrality of community in, uh, in the uh, mission of God, but we're also seeing how a healthy community needs to be par- marked uh, by particular values. How did I word this? Uh, the necessity of values that define a uh, healthy community. Same thing, basically. Um, now, all this is to say, again, this would be a statement that would be, I don't know, like, I feel like I'm almost doing like a PowerPoint presentation right now, and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, okay, this matters. So this really does matter uh, for your life. And I think particularly um, what's so important for you to see here is that if we really want to exist in community in a healthy way, we need somebody outside of us and above us to speak into us to help us know, like, how in the world do we actually coexist as a healthy community? How do we particularly do this in a healthy way? Now, why is that? Like, why should we have a little bit of, of humility with this? Um, well, let's sort of take a step back. And, and kind of the point of all this is I'm not just trying to, like, sociologically nerd out on you. I'm just trying to help you understand, like, how much we need what... Uh, 42 through 47 is going to say to us. So um, we as a culture exist in a really weird place. We kind, of, we kind of have this like bipolar thing going on where on one hand, we're radically autonomous. We're radically independent. We radically just sort of want to do our thing and nobody tell me what to do and I'm kind of the master of my fate and I do my own thing. And on the other hand, it's really weird, particularly in the last 10 years or so, there's been a real rise and a real clamoring for some element of authentic community, not just within the church, but within the entirety of culture as a whole. Now, why is that? Like, what exactly is going on here? Well, if you go back 100 years ago or so in our country, uh, it's interesting. If you look at the technological advancements of any culture, they always reflect, like, what are the values of that culture? And if you look at what's kind of come out of America over the last 100 years, the vast majority of of our advancements haven't simply made our lives easier, but have enabled us to live increasingly independent lives. Okay, think about technological advancements. Think about, um, I don't know, let's, let's, think, let's go back a while, few, several decades. Uh, the car was invented. Now, um, the car, I'm not opposed to the car. You just need to think about what the car did, where it radically shaped culture, where prior to the, the car, if you existed in a city, uh, you had to share transportation with all of your neighbors. 
You had to share a schedule with all of your neighbors. Isn't it, like some of you are just cringing at the thought of that word share. You just don't even like the sound of that. Like the opportunity to go where I want, when I want, like that is the promise that the car offers. And all of a sudden, that's an option that's offered to people where it's almost unthinkable to think about going back and doing anything else. Some of you do the public transportation exclusively, but on the whole, it's like, man, it's a pain that I can't do what I want when it is that I want as well. Not only that, but the car gave rise to a new kind of expression of living in our country called the suburbs. Now, again, I'm not like a pose of the suburbs. A lot of you come from the suburbs. We're not urban snobs. We're probably a little bit of urban snobs. But like, but like, I mean, like, I get it. Like, there's a lot of reasons to live in suburbs. But one of the things that was interesting that kind of developed in, in American culture is people could not only do what they want when they want, but they could w- live where they want around the people that they want as well. Uh, you know, think about this. Like in urban context, you don't have entire blocks of communities with giant signs that say homes from the blank. And there's an income level that sort of specifies as long as you make this amount of money, you're allowed in or you're not allowed in. But suburbs popped up, and all of a sudden communities where people could not only kind of live with the people that looked like them and experience the things of them and work the same as them and made the same amount of money as them, but even taking a step further, they were allowed increased amounts of space that allowed them and allowed our, our uh, ancestors to kind of just architect uh, almost like their own little kingdoms. Almost, uh, you know, a lot of you grew up in, in contexts where people might have had like a swimming pool in their backyard or might have had a playground in their backyard. And you juxtapose that from kind of historical urban living, even present urban living, like in my neighborhood, there's one jungle gym and there's one swimming pool and it's at the park and we have to share it with all of our neighbors. But you juxtapose that where people were able to live increasingly individualistic lives. Again, it's not intrinsically bad. You just have to think about that as the reality that has emerged. Now, the consequence of this is that people were living this increasingly individualistic lives throughout the 20th century, but there was some element of bankruptcy in it to the point that people over the last 10 or 15 years have started flocking to cities. Now, why? Why is it that people would do that even though it's more expensive and less space? Why would people do that? Because there's this inescapable longing for community within every single human being. Why? Because it is a reflection of the way that you were created as a human being. See, the reason that you crave community, even though sort of everything in culture tells you it's all about you and be alone and don't be around people, why is it? Because you were created in the image of a God who is triune in his nature. That is, that God is one in his essence, there's only one God, but he is three in his personhood, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and he has always eternally, perfectly existed in perfect community with himself. That's why, if any of you grew up in churches where you were taught the reason that God made people is because he was lonely, is that's dumb, that's not true, that's heresy. Uh, God was not like wringing his hands like, I'm lonely, and if only I had a friend like Brian and I could make Brian, and then he could like watch Netflix and then tell me what he thinks about the show so I have somebody to talk about, uh, you know, The Walking Dead because I don't have anybody else to talk to about this. Then It's like, that is a very small vision of God, and it's not right. He's eternally, always, perfectly existed in community because he's, even though he's one in his essence, he's three in his personhood, and it's very purposeful then if you read Genesis 1, when God first creates men and women, it says, let us create them in our own image. That's a very purposeful use of language there. It's perfect in terms of describing what it is that's happening here. And then it's also very significant Then one of the first things that God says in the history of the world in Genesis chapter 2 is it's not good for man to be alone. Alone. Okay, so those are the themes that are emerging. This is the way you were created, regardless of what you might believe about God. Like, what matters much more is, like, what did God design you to be? It's inescapable to function outside. Like, you're going to function in accordance with your design. And the reason we long for community is because it's part of our responsibility and part of our function as image bearers of a triune God. And as the consequence then, we feel caught in this really weird world because we're caught in this culture on one hand that's radically independent, radically autonomous. On the other hand, we have this inescapable longing for community and a lot of us are coming to the city. And a lot of you did this. A lot of you didn't grow up here, uh, but you chose to move here, even though it's more expensive and even though you would have less space. Why? Because you like the thought of being around other people. You don't even know what that looks like or what that means, but you're like, you know what? I grew up and my parents didn't have any friends and I didn't like that, and I wanted to come to the city where it doesn't have to be that way. The consequence of this, then, is there's a collection of people, like there's thousands of people that move to Denver every single month, longing for community, having no idea what sort of value should mark community. 
And all the while, everybody's using community as a buzzword to like sell their products too. So it gets even more confusing where it's like every new restaurant, every new gym, every new smoothie stand in downtown's like, we exist to create smoothies that create community. And you're like, what? Like, can't it just be like good smoothies? Like, why is it that community has to be a buzzword for every single thing we do? Because advertisers are really good at tapping into the longings of humanity. And the consequence then of all of this is, is like we kind of all want this thing called community and we have like no idea how to actually execute it. It's almost like, you know, at the beginning of the year, a bunch of people feel guilty for like not working out. And so a bunch of people who've never been to the gym go to the gym and like almost kill themselves at the gym because they don't know how to use the equipment at the gym. Like, you know, like I was reading this BuzzFeed article about like top 10 people that shouldn't be in a gym. And, uh, you know, there was just like a picture of somebody that was holding like a... Uh, uh, like uh, a barbell over their heads and they had like 45 plates over here and then like a 10 pound plate over here and I guess they assume, and they're just like like jumping up and down with it like this and it's like bro you're gonna kill yourself and everybody around you if you continue to do that I saw a picture of a girl on a stationary bike eating ice cream um, which again is like a good idea but is not kind of the way to do it at the gym and and so that's that's what happens it, is you have a bunch of people in this room longing to get in shape, having no idea how to actually execute it. And it's the same way in terms of what's going on in our city, where you have a generation of people that are moving to the city or staying in the city, longing for community, wanting community, everybody's using the word community, and nobody really knows how to execute it, or are we getting it, or are we not getting it, or should I be perpetually frustrated? And what's gonna happen if somebody bigger than us and outside of us doesn't speak into us and tell us, this is what you need. You know what's gonna happen? You're gonna be here for two years, and you get frustrated, and you're gonna go back to where you're from, and you're gonna say, I tried that thing, and then your kids are gonna grow up in the same way that you grew up, that you to being so frustrated and they're going to come to the city and do the exact same thing and it's going to be cyclical and it's going to stink and I'm trying to end that cycle for you right now. How's that sound? All right, does that sound good? I feel like that's helpful. Now, with that then, we should have some element of coming then to this passage that says, here's what marks a really healthy community and saying, man, thank God. Like, I want this. I want this to define me. I want this to mark my particular life. I want to build my life around these things. So what did this community uh, architect itself around? And it architected itself three particular values. The first was, and this is what you need if you're looking for a community, was a commitment to the truth of who Jesus is. A commitment to the truth of who Jesus is. Now look with me at verse uh, 42. Um, verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, where we see then their commitment to the truth, again, let's juxtapose this against culture where a lot of times like community is a buzzword and it's like, if I can just get around people. It's like, no, a healthy community has you around people, has you around friends, but you guys are going somewhere, okay? So it's not enough just to be around people, but you need to be, you need to be going in the right direction following the right person. And the first community that God planted wasn't just a community, but a community about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, what was that? Well, the apostles were the people who were sent out. Actually, the Greek word for apostle, apostello, it means to be sent out, like the sent out ones, the people who were sent out by Jesus to proclaim the truth of who it is that he is. And all these people, when they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it doesn't mean they were like fanboys of Peter. That's not what it's saying here. It means like they loved Jesus. They cherished Jesus. They knew Jesus. They wanted to follow Jesus. They were serious about knowing and obeying Jesus with the entirety of their lives. So you need that. Uh, the second thing you need is some element of commitment to other people as well, or a commitment to community as well. If you look at what emerges next, verse 44, it says, all who believe were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds of all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, this should be, uh, I would just say offensive to any of us who read it, or, or at least maybe that's too strong a word, either offensive or very, very uncomfortable to any honest American reader. Because again, the air in which we breathe, the water in which we swim, kind of the environment in which we have all been raised is like, it's about you and your happiness and your life and get what you want. And it's just like, you know, if you got offered a job tomorrow that takes you somewhere else, that allows you kind of a better life, or allows you more money, um, unless you're very, very unusual, any typical American is going to like say yes before they even ask their spouse if it's a good idea. It's like, like almost like, isn't it hard to almost think of like what would be the viable alternative 
Like, is it even possible to say no to, like, making more money? Is it even possible to say no to, like, you having a better life? Is that even, like, a, a viable option? And here is this community of men and women who do this radically countercultural thing where you know what they do? They come into a community and they actually make the decision to say, I am not the most important person in the room. That's unthinkable, isn't it? Like, where do you think they got that sort of mentality? It's like what we see is a community of men and women who are so radically transformed by the perpetually sacrificial giving nature of Jesus Christ that changed them, that actually they were blessed to be a blessing and they reflected the way that God had treated them to the gospel to the people around them as well. So you see tangible things like, for example, that when somebody has a need, you know, again, it's easy for us as Americans if somebody has a need to tweet about it, Facebook about it, but it's like the sacrifice for it. Like, you mean like I'm not going to go on vacation so that somebody else can have a need met? Like, I'm going to sell my second car so that, like, somebody has a place to live. You mean I'm going to, like, give them that shirt and I might not get it back because people stink at returning things that they get loaned? And it's just like, no, it's like my stuff and it's mine and I did it and I worked hard for it. And, yeah, like, that's a perfectly reasonable American way to think. It's just not a gospel way to think. And you had these people that were so transformed by the gospel that as they did life with one another, they actually prioritized one another and had this astoundingly high degree of commitment to one another as well. So you need that uh, as well. Third and finally, you saw not just a commitment to the gospel and community, but also a commitment to a mission as well. So again, it wasn't a bunch of people that just loved each other. They did love each other, but that community didn't exist for itself, but it actually existed for the good and the joy of those who didn't yet belong. And if you look at verse 47, it says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And so this wasn't just a, a radically loving and sacrificial community, but it was a growing community as well. It's remarkable, isn't it, that like, even though they existed in a culture that was fairly hostile to what it is they believe. In fact, if you read forward in Acts, pretty soon after this, they just start killing all these people. So I, I would say that's a bit of an understatement. They're very hostile to what it is they believe. And yet, there was such a radical love. There was such an, uh, like a, an understanding of a need to commit to this community and to love this community. And we don't exist for ourselves, but for the people outside of this. It says they had favor with all the people. They had favor with all the people. You know what that means in the Greek? It means they had favor with all the people. That's what it means. Like, like, there was some element of favor with all of these people that they were like, we don't really like what it is that you believe. We don't even agree with it, and we find much of it very, very offensive. Actually offensive to the degree that we're going to kill you for it. And yet, like, we kind of like you guys. That's a weird tension to exist within. I think it's the weird tension that any good countercultural church exists within as well. But you saw this, and the Lord was adding daily to their number those who are being saved. And so what you see from this community then is the gospel is planted. It gives rise to a new family called the church. And that church doesn't exist for itself, but for the good and the joy of those who don't yet belong. And that's what we've talked about again and again and again for the last decade or so before we ever moved to the city. It's what we wanted to be about. Actually, there's even a video, uh, a terrible video of me on the internet. Now, here's what's important for you to understand is nothing on the internet disappears ever. So write that down, okay? And remember that before you put things on the internet about yourself. See, wasn't it worth coming tonight that you just got that little fact? So yeah, and, and it's a video of me talking about this, and it's awful. It's like eight years ago, and I have this weird southern drawl, and it's, it's bad. Uh, but this is what I talked about. And fortunately, while accents change, the truth of the gospel does not. And uh, yeah, this is what we wanted to be about. And this is what we, by God's grace, have been about. And God has given uh, rise and, and, and just fruit of as well. So somebody's excited about that. Um, <laughs> now, with all that said then, let's go back to that kind of initial idea that we talked about to say, okay, well, how has kind of over time uh, our understanding of this passage uh, matured, not changed, but uh, matured. And what I want to point you to are three particular aspects of this passage. I feel like I historically, even though I taught it a number of times, have totally missed, never taught. And I'm really convicted to say, I want our community to reflect these things as well. And really, here's the thing, is like, if you pray for our church, if you care about our church, if you're bought in with our church, these are three things that I really want to ask you to pray to ask God to do. Uh, in the year 2017, and many years to come as well, because I don't think we can just put on a one-year timeline. Uh, but if you want to pray with us, these are three huge things that we're asking God for. Um, the first is this, is we want to be, uh, in the coming years, a community marked by the weight of God's glory. Uh, a community marked by the weight of God's glory. So um, every time I've ever taught this, I always skipped over verse 43 because I didn't really know what to do with it. 
If he knows I already did it. Some of you, like, some of you paid attention, and I appreciate that. Make us go verse by verse, unless we give an explanation to do otherwise. Now, look at verse 43. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, let's deal with the latter part of that first. Wonders and signs and miracles, like what exactly, like, those still happen? Do they not still happen? I mean, I don't think that's really the point of what's going on here. I mean, if you, you know, since you asked the question, so I asked the question, um, I think God's the same today as he's always been. I think he can do the miraculous at any time. I don't think it's the normative pattern that he advances his mission in North America. But again, I, I don't think that's the most important part of what's going on. I think it's what precedes that, where within this community, all came upon every soul. It's like there's this community of men and women who are so overwhelmed by the weight of God's glory. It's like there's this community of men and women who are just, you know, like awe. Like, I really, like, really love that word awe because like we live in a part of the country where like we're exposed to awe a lot, aren't we? Um, you know, you just have to go outside. Like, like you don't even have to hike a mountain in Denver. Like you can actually drive to the top of mountains, um, which is amazing, isn't it? Like, you can put that on your Facebook feed, like, look what I did, and you didn't do it, but it's okay. Like, it's amazing, though, isn't it? Like, if you've driven to the top of a mountain, like, you don't have to do that. Like, tomorrow, when it's daytime, look in that direction, and just, like, try to stare at it for 30 seconds, and it's just like, you almost have to look away. It's so beautiful. Like, we're, we're a community that's very and, and perpetually exposed to things that produce all within us, and it's like, these people... They had such an awareness of the weightiness and the grandeur of God. Like, by the way, the God who spoke and made those mountains that are overwhelming to us. So, I mean, he has a, an incomparable supremacy over those things. And it's like it was so overwhelming and so weighty for them, it like, that all came upon every soul. And I, this feels like an intangible thing to like, like, well, how do you measure this? right? Like, how do you measure it? Does all come upon the souls of the people of the Sunday church or not? I, I don't know. Like, I, I think most good things aren't all that measurable. Um, you just sort of pray and ask God that he produces that fruit in the lives of our people. But, man, I'm just like, I am increasingly burdened that, like, this would mark us. Uh, and I think particularly in, like, fairly trying, turbulent times, um, you know, it's been an interesting few months in our country. And I'm going to try not to get too political about this, but it is, as people have started affectionately calling it, Brian After Dark, where I'm much less censored than the mornings where you guys are like, you guys aren't as prudish as them. Don't tell them I said that. But <laughs> um, And some of you are here from the mornings and you're like, he said what? And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know... Sorry, I'm just trying to think about like what I want to be precise in my language. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think in our country's history, it's hard to kind of know the the nature of the age that you're living in. But it seems like if you study history, uh, people are, are kind of more scared than they've really been uh, in a long time. Um, the country is definitely more divided than it's been. I mean, just kind of pure statistical analysis reflects this. There's just kind of more division, and it seems like everybody—not just sort of kind of one segment of culture—but everybody is fairly afraid of where it is that we're headed uh, as a country. And I feel like if you study the history of the people of God, um, they have not taken their hope for the future from the circumstances of their culture. You know, like, they have continually, in spite of their circumstances, look to the unchanging character and nature of God, and that has been an anchor for their souls in really turbulent, difficult times. Now, with this, here's kind of like, so somebody gave me the critique this morning that I wasn't specific enough, so let me be specific, and then if I've hurt your feelings by saying this, come and tell me afterwards, don't talk about me on the drive home, okay? Is that, sound, is that a fair deal? Thank you. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, let's take yesterday, for example. I'm all of a sudden the guy who's talking about politics. It's like, I hated those guys, and now I am that guy. So, you know, just come Lord Jesus. But it's like, you take yesterday, for example. Uh, what some people are saying is the largest demonstration uh, in the history of the United States. Peaceful, by the way, which was spectacular. Um, and I totally affirm, before you ladies are like, what is he going to say? I totally affirm. Like, I think Trump... Um, 
again, some of you are new and you're like, does he do this every week? It's just like, no, I don't. But sometimes at the PM. And I just think, here, here's the thing. Because I'm not trying to get too political about this, and I think I'm not trying to make even a statement about the election. But here's what I can say absolutely and unashamedly is like the way that Trump has historically talked about and treated women is an abomination. Uh, it is so jacked up, and I'm trying not to cuss right now. Um, and, and so, like, when I see, and probably some of you, I know a number of women from our church. Uh, protested, have their voice heard. And I think that's a totally viable thing. Historically, if you study the history of the church, uh, Christians have been at the front lines of the greatest movements of fighting injustice, slavery, segregation. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's fairly amazing because we believe our faith uh, doesn't just sort of stay in the private sector, but actually produces transformation in the public sphere, which is why a lot of the greatest transformations in the history of the world have come through people passionate about the gospel. So, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, it has also simultaneously been interesting to me to observe the way that people are talking about kind of what's going on in culture and the degree of despair they possess in the deepest recesses of their soul, like, almost like God isn't alive anymore. Uh, almost like if somebody else had been elected, and again, for a lot of us, we looked at the election and it was like, well, how do you make a choice between two bad options? But, but other people are kind of like, Almost like the right person could get elected into office, we wouldn't have any of these problems anymore. Almost like because the right person could get elected into office, like people are asking the question, do I even want to go on living? And they're just freaking out to a degree to which they wonder, like, at least functionally, is God really on the throne? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I think in this particular moment, like what I'm so burdened for, for the people of the Summit Church, particularly if you're passionate about the world and the world doesn't look the way that you want it to, be, to look like. And if you have a passion for the king, coming of the kingdom of God, then you are going to be deeply heartbroken of what's going on in the world right now in so many different sectors of culture. But to look at that and say, my circumstances are not going to be the lens through which I interpret my reality. The unchanging character of who God is is going to be the lens through which I interpret my circumstances. And the goodness of God, particularly the goodness and the power of God historically in deeply frightening, troubling times, is going to be the anchor for the soul of my soul so that I might endure. And... Yeah, I'm not saying like you shouldn't be outraged at injustice. I would never say that whatsoever. But I'm saying is like because injustice exists doesn't mean you should believe that there isn't a just God who's directing the course of history and at the end of days, he will restore the world and put it back together in the way that it was meant to be and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what, if, you've long, like, if you're in Christ, and if you've longed for the coming of the kingdom, the king will come back, and the kingdom will be put back together, and you will not have to freak out anymore. And we'll fight in the meantime, and we will struggle, and we will weep, and we will mourn, and we will be loud about injustice in all sectors of culture, because it's everywhere. But we will not despair, and we will not lose hope, and we will not change our understanding of who God is, because the circumstances change. In fact, what's so powerful to me about these people that had all in response to the character and nature of God is you like, I'm not trying to say we have great circumstances right now, but they at least weren't as bad as what these guys were going through, where it's like, boom, next chapter they're getting arrested, next chapter they're getting killed. And yeah, I, I, that's probably all I should say. So I just, yeah, I'm really desiring for that. The way we're going to do this, um, I just want to give you some action steps with this as well is uh, we're going to teach the book of Exodus. So starting the Sunday after Super Bowl Sunday, we're going to teach through Exodus for a year. And the biggest impetus for me wanting to teach through this book is that I feel like this gives just a huge vision of who it is that God is. Um, and I think we need that. Like, I think we need to reclaim. And, and like American culture where God is your buddy, he's wringing his hands in the corner, like hoping that people make the right decisions. Like, no, that's not who God is. I mean, you're going to see things in Exodus where God flexes his muscles as God, and you're going to be like, can he do that? Yes, he can. He's God. And it's just like, I'm just praying that your vision of his grandeur and glory is enlarged, and it just anchors your soul through really hard things in life as well. All right, that's just one. Uh, Two, we're asking uh, that God would produce uh, an awe for who he is. The second thing is, um, we want to be a community that's marked by increased uh, ethnic and generational diversity. 
uh, increase ethnic and generational diversity. Now, where I get this from is kind of what I feel like I really missed uh, in verse 44. If you look at this, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, I always used to read that and be like, oh, isn't it cool that they were all friends? Isn't it cool that they all had things in common? Um, what's important, this is why we read kind of passages in context, is like, well, who are these all people, who are these people that had all things in common? And if you read earlier in chapter two, what's happened is people from all over the world have flocked to Jerusalem for this major Jewish holiday. And so actually, if you look at two, uh, verse nine, it describes like, who are the people that repent and baptize, get baptized and form this first church? Well, it's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome and both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so this first community was radically, profoundly diverse uh, in its ethnic expression. And I think it'd be reasonable to presuppose uh, as well as generational expression as well. Um, I went long on the last point. So let me just, we've talked about this before. Like, this is something we asked God for at the beginning of 2016. We'll ask God for at the beginning of 2017. We'll be asking God for the rest of our existence. This is hard. This is really hard work, and it's work that only he can do. I think God is doing something in the life of our church and the life of our leaders. I think he's building a foundation, and a lot of times a foundation being built, the right foundation being built, like a change in leadership, a a repentance of well-intentioned ignorance as it pertains to a lot of these issues is like so much of the work. I was thinking about this as, you know, we live in this neighborhood, and so there's, like, new things going up everywhere. Sorry, that wasn't very specific. New uh, condos, apartments, high-rises. You're like, what is he talking about? I don't know. I'm tired. Um, But, like, new apartments, and, you know, there's one going in uh, right off Larimer, if you go down this way. I I can't remember what they call it. I think they call it S Park, um, and it's it's a high-rise. It's going up. It's right by, like, Topo Designs and five blocks that way. And uh, Megan and I were driving by it yesterday, and it was just interesting because I just made this comment to her where I was like, man, it seems like they take like eight months to build the foundation for these things and then they put up the building in like a week. And uh, as I, like, after I made that comment, I was like, you know what? I think that's the kind of the way that anything is built. Um, there's like, you know, 90% of the time is stuff below ground that you don't see whatsoever. And I feel like that's what it is that God's been doing over the last year and I think continues to do as well. And yeah, it's like, I'm just really desiring that God would do this in the life of our community, that we would be a community. I, I just think for such a time as this, and a time where the country is still uh, astoundingly divided amongst uh, racial divides, uh, we exist in a community um, that's gentrifying, and there are so many complexities with gentrification, but one of the absolute tangible consequences, even in our own community, is there's this sort of fracturing of the different people that call uh, these neighborhoods over here home. And I just think, like, for such a time as this, God has put the Summit Church in this community, in the history of our neighborhood, in the history of our country, in the history of our world, to bridge the gap when everybody else is freaking out. Uh, not, not because it's, like, it's a cool thing to do right now. Uh, not because we're just trying to launch diversity initiatives and in sort of Michael Scott-esque fashion. I'm going to show you a training video and then we'll not feel guilty. Um, No, because we believe that it is a biblical value. Uh, We believe that it's a biblical conviction. In the history of America, uh, it has not been cool for the majority of our country's history to be diverse. And I think if you're a student of history at all, you know that things go in seasons. Like cultures are getting better and better and better. It's cyclical, and a lot of times it gets worse. And so we don't sort of take our initiatives from what's popular in culture. We take it from the scriptures, and we believe this is a biblical responsibility to really, to the best of our ability, to stretch ourselves, to reflect our community, to reflect our world, and to reflect what the kingdom of God looks like, where, if we're just honest, white people will be the minority in English. Uh, well, I think God's going to restore all languages back together. But anyways, um, but, but, you know, like English will not be the majority language. And uh, yeah, just, just asking that God would do this. Um, one, one tangible step that we're going to take through this uh, is March 26th and 27th. Yeah, that's right. March 26th and 27th, uh, we're going to have a guy named D.A. Horton uh, out with us. So he's going to preach all three services on Sunday, and then Monday he'll do a special training uh, for us and one of the churches that we planted, the Heights as well. And it's going to be awesome. If you don't know D.A., I would just find him on Twitter 
or just Google him, read what he's written, listen to him talk. He's one of the most gifted leaders, theologically driven, theologically thoughtful, orthodox, Bible-loving, and also at the same time, I think one of the most intelligent voices about the gospel and racial reconciliation uh, that exists in culture, and we're very, very fortunate to have him here. Uh, Seriously, he normally speaks to churches much, much bigger than ours, but we were planted out of the same church, and he likes helping us out every once in a while, and so he's going to do that. So prioritize being here uh, for that as well. And then third and finally, uh, we're asking God to create all and wonder within us. We're asking God to create an increasingly diverse uh, community, both ethnically and generationally. And then third and finally, uh, we're asking that God would make us a community marked by such favor in our city that the city would desire our multiplication that the city would desire our multiplication as well. Um, Verse 47, I spent a lot of time thinking about verse 47, but it talks about how he was praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that kind of term there, like having favor with all the people, we talked about this a little bit before, but I don't know. It's like, you know, for us as a church, we desire to multiply. We're going to talk about this, how we're doing this with city groups. We planted a church last year, uh, we helped start another church last year. We've got another church planting resident with us now. Um, and I think it's just easy a lot of times to think about church planting um, and even church multiplication, particularly in an increasingly hostile culture to like Orthodox Christianity as this like, uh, almost like, uh, what term do I want to use? Like this like fight. It is a fight. Like, but like those jerks don't want us here and we're coming anyways and they're going to like it. And it's just like, if it's possible, I want to do it the verse 47 way. We're like, we are bizarre. You know, we're like in a city is kind of irreligious as our own. They look at what it is we believe and they're like, man, you guys like actually believe the Bible and actually follow Jesus and you're actually Orthodox and you actually don't just mirror the culture. Yeah, well, that's weird. I didn't even know that young people like thought that way. Yeah, we do actually think that way. There's some of us left. Uh, and then like, like in spite of the fact that they don't necessarily like what it is that we believe. They so see our tangible love for this community and for this city, they clamor for there to be more of us. Like, could you just think about that? Like, like what if we existed for this city to such a degree that even the people that like, are hostile to what it is that we believe clamor to have us in the community because they see the degree to which we fight for the joy of this community? And I think we're doing this. Like, again... There's not huge initiatives with this, but in a lot of ways, it's just like, we got to keep doing what it is that we're doing. And as you, like, l- listen, Summit Church, like, for those of you who actually get to know your neighbors, as opposed to see this neighborhood as nothing more than a pure real estate investment. A- as you see needs in your community, um, and everybody else just kind of wants to avoid it, and you actually do something about it. You know, I'm talking like, instead of you just sort of loudly putting things on social media about change needing to be produced in the world, like you actually do the hard work of producing change in the world. As you fight and as you labor and as you serve and as you sacrifice and as we do that, like as hundreds of us who now call the Summit Church home, which is crazy to think about, but hundreds of us who now call the Summit Church home anonymously, unglamorously serve and sacrifice and love and all of the kind of hidden nooks and crannies of Denver culture will produce as an overflow of God's grace. And I think this type of fruit will be produced. And we are seeing this fruit produced as well. Now, I, I caught a vision of what it is that like, I'm asking God for uh, in the future. Uh, we adopted my daughter from Taiwan. And uh, Ted, who runs the home of, uh, that, that my daughter was living at, you know, Taiwan is like 99.9999% Buddhist. There's almost no Christians whatsoever. And I remember one day I was in Taiwan with him, and I asked Ted the question, um, like, how do you guys fund your ministry? Like, how in the world do you guys, like, make ends meet and take care of all these kids? And how in the world do you exactly pull this off? And, uh, and Ted was like, well, uh, like, 99% of our budget is funded by our local community, and 1% comes from wealthy American churches that every once in a while send us a check. And I was like, wait, 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 you mean the opposite, right? Like, did you see it backwards? He's kind of an old guy. Like, maybe you're a little confused. Like, you you meant like 1% comes from the community and 99% comes from wealthy American churches. And he's like, no, 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 no. I meant meant what it is that I said. Like, our community funds our ministry. And I kind of was like, well, how the heck is that possible? And Ted paused. And in the most authentic humble, kind way possible. He's like, well, I, I don't know. Like, I guess, uh, 
I guess they don't really believe what it is that we believe, but we've made such a difference in this community. They know they can't live without us, and they love us, and they want to fund us, and so we continue to exist. I was like, is that possible? Like, can you do that? <laughs> like, the Buddhists are funding your ministry? Like, what, what is it that's going on? And, man, like, what if we were this type of community that so existed that even the people that didn't kind of believe what it is that we believe funded us because they know they need us in this community. I'm not trying to be like, if you call the summit home, don't give money here. You're like, oh, that's a great giving strategy. Yeah, like, well, it took Ted like 45 years to produce that. We're in year six. But I think it's just like, I caught a vision in that and I was like, that's the type of community that I want to be. That's the type of community I want to be. And I think God and his grace is producing that within us as well. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm asking God for. And I would just ask you to ask God for that as well. Uh, Not just this week, not just in the United Series, but really uh, regularly and consistently throughout this year. Um, You know, every single year that I do this more and more and more, I feel like this weird dichotomy grows where uh, on one hand, I become increasingly aware of my inadequacies and shortcomings as a leader um, to do anything significant in the life of our church. And that is not false humility. That's not meant to be like, oh, he's like talented and humble too. Like, that's not what I mean. Like, I just, you know, there's like, there's certain things that through my own strength, I can make happen and none of those things matter. That's what I've realized in the life of a church. But the type of things that I think God is calling us to as a community, uncomfortable things, difficult things, things that are far beyond our capacities or abilities, the type of things like you know, being a diverse community, being an all-filled, glory-driven community, uh, being a community that has this type of reputation in the neighborhood, only God can do those things. Only God can do those things. And as a consequence then, we as the Summit Church consistently, regularly ask him to do what only he can do. And you know what I'm really looking forward to? Is that someday in the future, a number of you will still be here in the city and still call the Summit Church home and you will look back in retrospect and you'll see what it is that God's done. And people will be like, man, like, what was the strategy to doing it? And you'll say, that's a stupid question. Don't ask that question. The only explanation is that God stepped in and moved. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that day. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who it is that you are and uh, what it is that you've done. And uh, yeah, we just thank you for what it is that you're doing in the world. And uh, we thank you for grace and your kindness. And uh, we do. Again, humbly ask you to do this. Let us be a community that is overwhelmed by uh, the weight of your glory and let that in really difficult trying times uh, just be an anchor for our soul. Um, I pray that we would, by your power, become an increasingly uh, ethnically and generationally diverse church. And uh, yeah, I I don't want to be comfortable with this. Like I, I want to stretch ourselves. I want us to reflect the kingdom of God. Please help us do that. Please help us do that. Please help us do that. Uh, and I just pray that this community would know the degree to which we love it. And uh, we are not here first to take, but rather to give. Uh, we are not here just for the experiences that Denver has to offer, but we are here to make Denver just the best city that it can be. And we pray that it would be like in Denver as it is in heaven. Um, and we know that, like, we will not make that happen. We know that, like, it's not until the king returns that the kingdom will be fully restored and reestablished. But we will fight for that, and we will long for that, and we will speak for that. And, uh, yeah, I pray that even as we exist in a city that finds what we believe increasingly peculiar, they would know that we love them and they would love us in return. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.